We gave a talk a lot yesterday to a group of parents, and we had them close their eyes and visualize their kids coming to them all grown up, like they're 30 years of age. And we said, what kind of people do you want them to be? What's important? So then they made, we made a list of things like honest, high integrity, kind, loving, independent, motivated, ambitious, contented. We made a nice list. And I tell the parents after we make the list, and we've done that list, by the way, in 17 different countries and all over the U.S., so all kinds of people. And never on the list have we seen straight A's or attending a top college or winning a national championship at the age of eight on their club team. But I say, where, where's our energy go? Where does a lot of our energy go? It's those kinds of things. So it's nice that to be, you know, as parents, or if your kids are old enough, they're older, to invite them in on the conversation. What do we value? What's important to us? This is Country Club Conversations. I'm Raj Tut, founder and CEO of Storyboard Living. This show gives you actionable insights from the hard to reach top percentile in business and entrepreneurship. I think everyone deserves this type of access and I'm bringing it to you. Welcome to the club. Dr. Jordan, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I appreciate your time today. So you're a behavioral pediatrician. You're also an author, a speaker, a podcast host, and you run retreats. All of your work is focused around young girls, which is, I think, unique. I've, I've never come across anyone that really has your specialty. And to be honest with you, I never looked until I had my daughter and I started to look for perhaps what might be the optimal way to raise her. Can you give me some background in your own words on what you have going on with all the various things you're involved in? Well, my background, I'm a, I'm a pediatrician. That was my original training. But then I did a two-year fellowship in something called developmental and behavioral pediatrics. That's kind of a mouthful. But I, so I, st I was a pediatrician for about three years, and I decided it wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to do my subspecialty more. So about 30-something years ago, I stopped being a, a, you know, like an everyday pediatrician, and I started my counseling practice. So it's evolved a lot. So today, what it looks like is a few days a week, I counsel girls in my office, mostly middle school, high school, and college girls or young women, uh, an hour each, a few days a week. My wife and I have a school program called Strong Girls, Strong World. So we're like this semester, we were in two schools. Uh, we go maybe every week or so. Um, I also uh, do these, I, I have my own podcast called Raising Daughters. So I spend a lot of time doing that. We also travel about Oh, eight, 10, 12 times a year, giving workshops, talks. We've run a lot of father-daughter, father-son retreats all over the place. So that's the main thing. And, oh, and also the weekend retreats and the summer camps for girls. And those are now 33 years old, which is probably older than you are. And so the retreats are personal growth in nature. We decided that's another little niche that we have is it's, it's fun camp. It's fun retreats. You know, we have a blast. But there's also a, a learning part of it, that social emotional learning aspect, which is really unique. Thanks for sharing that. So uh, I did read that you were in pediatrics full time for over 40 years before you started to pursue what you're currently doing. Did you start some of what you're currently doing? Oh, no, only, only for three. Okay. Only for three years was I a pediatrician. Oh. So I've been doing the counseling and all this other stuff over the last 30, 33 or so years. 
That makes a lot of sense. I had my numbers mixed up there. Uh, you, you quit over 40 years ago. Is that right? Yes, something like that. Back in the late 80s. Got it. Got it. You're on your sixth book as well at the moment, in addition to the hundreds of podcast episodes. So before we jump into how you're able to juggle all the things you're currently doing and all the things you're currently doing, can you give me some background on sort of what the spark was for you to go into pediatrics in the first place? Well, I've, I've known my whole life that um, I wanted to work with kids because I've my whole life I has, I've worked with kids. When I was a kid, I umpired Corey League Baseball. I worked in summer camps for, uh, I think, four or five summers. I always loved being with kids, playing with kids, working with kids. And my wife says, I had two older brothers growing up. And then I came along, number three boy. My parents thought, oh, my gosh, we'll never have any girls. Then they had five girls. So I had five younger sisters growing up. So my wife says, that's that's when, that's where my love for working with girls started. And I was, I was like a, a second dad for my youngest two sisters. There was a, a 10-year gap. And my dad was gone a lot working, trying to <laughs> afford or to pay for, you know, eight kids. So I, I, I've been like a dad for, you know, a thousand years. And so I think that's my love for kids has always been there. And when I went to college, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to work with kids somehow. I took education classes. I took the pre-med classes in case I wanted to be a pediatrician. And then for lots of different reasons, I end up in the medical track. Our camps initially 33 years ago were co-ed and my counseling practice way back in the day was co-ed. But after a certain number of years of that, I just realized I had a, more of a, a love for working with girls. They were easier. And our camps became more, if I can say that, this girl-friendly. The sitting down in a circle and talking about your life, talking about your challenges, talking about your feelings. We just became a more girl-friendly in that, in that sense, if you will. Boys need their own personal growth as well. But I think what we did was more geared towards girls. And so I, I stopped seeing girls in my counseling practice. We stopped having girls in our camps, oh, probably, I'd say 15 to 20 years ago. And it just developed this niche. The decision to focus strictly on helping young girls, I'm sure, aside from the passion you have for it, it might have also been affected by maybe some of the issues that you were seeing young girls facing. Is that accurate to say? And if so, what kind of issues at that time were you seeing young girls really being challenged with versus today? Yeah, I think we saw a need, the need that wasn't being met, meaning that the girls were struggling with a lot of stress. I think what's evolved in the last 15 or 20 years since we switched over was, I think girls are even more anxious now. There's more depression. There's more stress. There's more pressure on them. There's a organization called, I think, the American Association of College Mental Health something or other. Anyway, for the last 20 or more years, they, every year they do surveys of like 90,000 college students all over the country asking all kinds of questions. But there's a big section on mental health. And if you look at the answers that men versus women have in college, and they ask questions like, how many in the last year have you experienced blank? Things like overwhelming stress, high anxiety, uh, feeling a lot of pressure, uh, not being able to sleep, having uh, at least moderate depression. When they, they ask those questions, the girls, two-thirds at least, will answer yes to those questions. Boys, it's more like 30% or so. So it's less. There's some of that in boys, but not nearly as much for girls. So girls are feeling that stress and that pressure even more so today than boys. It's, it's different. Boys have their own stresses and all, but I think girls are suffering more. And there's a ton of research that would show you that 
for a lot of reasons that girls' levels of anxiety and depression are higher than boys. My daughter is three years old, so perhaps too young to really feel that stress or anxiety yet. But if there were a parent who was worried about their daughter and they feel like she has some of that stress and anxiety and they came to you, they said, hey, Dr. Jordan, can you help my daughter? What would that look like in terms of someone wanting to work with you or attend your workshops or camps? They could go to our website. It's just drtimjordan.com. Or they could call our office I, you know, and set an appointment. I would first listen. I would try and get a sense of wonder what's going on with my daughter. Why is this she seems so stressed? And you know, some girls are like open books. They'll share it all. There's other kids who hold things closer to the vest. That's true for boys and girls. So you kind of have to know your kid and to kind of have a sense of what's the best context to get the most. And so I think I would listen. I would ask a few questions like, you know, what's going on? I've noticed lately that you've been having a hard time sleeping. I've noticed lately you've had a hard time uh, you're feeling more stressed. You're not turning your homework in. You don't seem to be calling your friends as much, you know, things of that sort. And I would listen to try and get a sense of what's going on for my kid. I encourage parents to get a kind of a report card all around their life. So when you go to a parent-teacher conference, I'd be much more, I'd be much less interested in how are her grades. I'd be more interested in what's she like in your class? Does she talk to people? Does she raise her hand? How does she seem? Who do, have you noticed her in the cafeteria? Who is she hanging with? Who is she sitting with? So I try and get a sense of all of that. One of the things I have found when girls come to my office, and they a lot of them have been diagnosed already. They've seen maybe a psychiatrist or someone with anxiety disorder or, or depression or something. In my experience, many of them, most of them, don't really deserve a diagnosis the way I look at it. What I find is a lot of them, what they're showing you are symptoms of overload. I ask girls a series of questions. I'll ask them, do you ever feel like you get overwhelmed, overloaded? Oh, yeah. And I'll say, how can you tell? And they're like, I'm not sure. And I say, let me, give you, let me go down this list of questions in my mind. Do you ever, ever have a hard time falling asleep at night? Okay, you ask a room full of girls, almost every hand goes up. Do you ever snap at people who don't deserve it? And they all, most of them raise their hands. You see their parents, sometimes their boyfriends or girlfriends or their friends. Do you ever get body symptoms, stomach aches, headaches? A lot of hands go up for that one. Do you ever have anxiety, get, get really worried about things, get all worked up? Lots of hands. Do you ever uh, have a hard time focusing in school? Do you get uh, distracted? Do you ever feel kind of blah, like you lose your motivation? Those are symptoms of there's a lot going on. I'm not taking care of it. I have been conditioned by our culture to be busy and to, uh, and to be distracted. And we've done a great job of you know, modeling and teaching our kids to be distracted and busy. And so they don't know how to take some alone, quiet time to check in and say, what's going on? I don't feel right. Why am I so stressed? What's going on? They have a hard time doing that. And so they, or they just get distracted from it. I don't want to feel it. I don't want to go there. And so those feelings and those thoughts and those issues build up to the point where now they're on overload and then it starts looking like anxiety or depression or any of those kinds of symptoms. I see more of that than I see kids who really, in my mind, deserve a diagnosis. Your messaging is really about, you know, raising strong girls. And when you mentioned the overload and trying to tackle that before it gets to the anxiety or, or a diagnosis, it makes me think of my daughter who, like I said, is three years old. So if, if there's someone like me who wants to put in the, the solid foundation, whether it's uh, our family values or the way we, we handle 
conflict in our family or just the, the values we try to put into our kids. How can we essentially develop our daughter to avoid that overload or to be able to handle the stressors that are inevitably going to come uh, later in life? Yeah, that's a great question. There's, that's a lot to unpack. But let me just a couple of things, a couple of highlights. One of them is we encourage parents to, did you ever read Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? Maybe some of it. Sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, it, it was on the bestseller list for like 100 years. But, yeah. but one of his first habits was to begin with the end in mind. Begin with the end in mind. And so we encourage parents to sit down and talk to each other and say, what's our end in mind? We gave a talk yesterday to a group of parents, and we had them close their eyes and visualize their kids coming to them all grown up, like they're 30 years of age. And we said, what kind of people do you want them to be? What's important? So then they made, we made a list of things like honest, high integrity, kind, loving, independent, motivated, ambitious, contented. We made a nice list. And I tell the parents after we make the list, and we've done that list, by the way, in 17 different countries and all over the U.S., so all kinds of people. And never on the list have we seen straight A's or attending a top college or winning a national championship at the age of eight <laughs> on their club team. But I say, where, where's our energy go? Where does a lot of our energy go? It's those kinds of things. So it's nice that to be, you know, as parents, or if your kids are old enough, they're older, to invite them in on the conversation. What do we value? What's important to us? So that's one thing is that you and your and your spouse, if you have one, you can sit down and say, what's our end in mind? And so we can start using that to drive our decisions. So when when your daughter gets a little older and there's a decision, she's playing soccer in the fall, and then she also has is, is been asked to, to also be on a, on a volleyball team or, or some other activities. If you have decided as a family, we want more downtime, time alone at home, we're, we're all together and hanging out, then the answer would be no. If you're going by what everybody else is doing, the answer is yes, and all of a sudden, everybody's stressed out. So one thing is I would begin with the end in mind. I'd become a great listener. Not that you're not, but I would make sure you're, you're a great non-judgmental listener who just listens and doesn't go quickly to advice or fixing or rescuing. You just want to let her know that if you come to us, we will try and get in your shoes and see it from your point of view. It doesn't mean we necessarily agree all the time, but we'll mirror back what we think you're, you're saying until you know we got it. We see you. We hear you. We understand. That's a huge gift for anybody. And also, that's one of the best things that you can do, you and your and your and her mom. It's one of the best things you can do to ensure that you will be an influence in her, in her life now through the teen years and beyond. I would spend special time with her. I'd create some rituals that you do together. It's really easy to do things with a three-year-old. It's easy to start rituals when your kid is eight. Sometimes if you introduce that when they're 16 or 17, it's a little bit harder sell, perhaps. But if you can establish some things that you do together that become things just for her and her dad, for instance, that allows you the time when if she wants to talk about something, she knows you're there. I'd make sure you have that long tuck-ins every night. Not just when she's three, but when she's 13, when she's 16. They're never too old for that. I promise you, I've worked with teenage girls for a long time. They're never too old for that. And also, one, one last thing. I could go on forever. One last thing which is really important to me, I'm very passionate about this, is I want all of our kids to be self-motivated. I want them to find their own paths. And this culture, we can talk about this in more detail if you want. This culture has, start, has conditioned us as parents and kids to believe that there's this one right path in your life. 
You study hard, you get straight A's, you go to a top college, you need to get a good job, you need to make a lot of money. That's the line we've set for kids, which isn't the line that, that everybody has to follow, right? But there's a lot of pressure on kids to do that. And so a lot of kids will follow that path because they want to please us. They don't want to disappoint us. Everybody else is doing it. So there's a good question you can ask her all along the way, even at age three. If she walks up to you with a, with a, with a little piece of paper, she's colored something. It's really easy to go, oh, that's so beautiful. I love your drawings. You're so great. And I, I always teach parents a better question might be, what do you like about your picture? And when she's in, and she's in first grade and she, and she plays soccer and she's out there having fun and you're talking to her, I'd say, what do you like about soccer? What do you like so much about going to dance? Why do you like that so much? I know how excited you get. What do you like about drawing? What do you like about reading? You start to help kids learn to identify, what's the feeling I get from doing these things I love to do? That is my intrinsic internal motivation, which is always there and will always be there. I'm not always going to have my mommy and daddy there patting me on the back and pumping me up and praising me and encouraging me. I need to learn to find my own motivation for things. So all along the way, you can get them to, to look inside and then get a sense of what does this mean to me? When I see high school girls in my office a lot of times, I'll ask them, what kind of grades do you want to get in school? And then they'll look at me like I'm an idiot and they'll say, well, A's, right? And I go, why do you want A's? And then I get one of two answers, typically. One answer is that, that line. Well, so I can get into a good college and get a good job, make a lot of money. That's one line of, of that's their answer. But most of the girls look at me and they go, well, I, and they kind of stammer. And then they don't have an answer because nobody's asked them, why do you want to get those kind of grades? Why do you want to play soccer? I also ask them, do you have any, any idea what you want to do after high school? And many of them will go, well, I'm going to go to college. And I'll say, why do you want to go to college? I get the same answer. Most of them don't have an answer because they haven't learned to think for themselves. So if you want your daughter to be uh, happy and fulfilled and powerful and confident, all those things, I think that's one of the main things you can do for her as well. Sorry, I went on for too long. Oh, no worries. The, you're the star of the show. And uh, that's why you're on because you're, you're the expert in this domain. So you mentioned a couple of really, really interesting things. Um, so I made a few notes to come back to, but while we're on the topic of raising strong girl with strong values, that's an independent thinker. When you say a strong girl, what does that mean to you? Because a lot of your messaging, I would say almost all of your messaging is around, you know, raising a strong girl to become a strong, independent woman. But what does strong mean to you? Well, it, well that's a good question. It, it can mean a lot of things. I, my last book that I published about a year ago was called She Leads. It's about how do you raise a leader? And being a leader doesn't mean you're necessarily a CEO of a company. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be the first woman president of the United States, although that would be nice. It's more like, are you in charge of your life? Do you know yourself? Are you comfortable with who you are? Do you make good decisions for yourself? Do you trust yourself? So do you trust your intuition as opposed to doing what everybody else is doing or what you think you should be doing? Are you self-motivated? Can you set boundaries and take care of yourself? Can you speak up and ask for what you want? and get your needs met? Can you advocate for yourself? Are you in charge of your life? And are you even in charge of what success means to you? Culture's definition of success is you get this great job and you're leaning in and going to the top of the of your career ladder and then making a lot of money. That's, that's kind of like the, the culture's definition of success. But what is your definition? What do you want? What would it mean to you? 
if I ask girls, and I've done this a, not a million times, I've done this hundreds of times. If I ask a room full of girls, you know, who are the le- who are the heroes in our culture? They say the same things: first responders, soldiers, professional athletes. I say, okay, but what they don't identify is a woman who goes into a field where there aren't very many women. They don't talk about a teacher who's working in an inner city. They don't talk about a nurse who was on the front lines when the COVID thing hit or a doctor. They don't talk about those people who, in my mind, are heroes. We've got this in their schools. They'll say the leaders in my school are the student council president, the most popular kid, the captain of the team, the queen bee. Most kids don't fall under that umbrella. And so they don't see themselves as being strong or leaders. And so I want them to widen the definition of what that means. Widen the definition of courage and bravery and leadership. We have this patriarchal old thing, like, you know, you're standing on the, like President Bush staying on the aircraft carrier saying, mission accomplished, you know, this macho kind of patriarchal kind of masculine model, which is okay. But there's a lot of other qualities that are equally as important that I think our girls aren't getting enough of or, or hearing enough about or being affirmed for. I think if we see it in them and we affirm it, they're much more likely to live them out. How much of that do you think comes from popular culture or media in terms of the, I guess, muddied message of what being a leader really can mean? I think that's one place it comes from. I also think it comes from biases, stereotypes. It's better than it was, but it's still still not as much as it should be. Girls still get a lot of mixed messages. Uh, Young girls... High school girls, young women, women in the workforce, there's still a lot of mixed messages out there about be out there, be strong, but not too much. If I have a group of girls, I've done this a lot in the last 10, 15 years. I'll have a group of girls in like fifth grade, eighth grade, high school, make a list of the qualities of a good girl, the kind of girl that the culture, your parents, teachers, everybody wants you to be. And that list um, puts things down there like, you know, always kind, always happy, good grades puts other people's needs first, nurturing. They have all this whole list of things. And they aren't bad things, but but then we make a list of the qualities of a bad girl, quote unquote, a bad girl. And But there's things on that, on that list that are actually really good things, like doesn't care what other people think and speaks out. And there's things on the good girl list that I don't want girls to put everybody's needs before themselves always. I want them to be of service. I want them to be kind to people, but but their needs are also important. So they, I think girls wrestle a lot with those mixed messages. And I think that's one of the things that causes a lot of angst and also a lot of stress for them. A lot of your content is centered around, of course, the anxiety, the angst and things of that nature. So is it safe to say that if someone were to attend a camp or a retreat that you're hosting, that is going to be the primary topic that's discussed and, and worked through? No, if, if they come, when girls come to our weekend retreats or our summer camps, we have a whole, we've been doing it for 33 years. We have a whole curriculum, all kinds of ideas, exercises, things that stir them up, if you will. But then we always follow that group's lead. And I tell kids and I tell parents all the time, I, I know this is true because I've done this for a long time. If I walked into any middle school or any high school in any place and grabbed the first 20 or 25 girls I saw, you, you, you just come here. And I got them and I took them on a retreat so they could kind of, you know, be more vulnerable and open up some more. I guarantee you that almost all of them, all of them have things that they can talk about. Life happens, you know, life things. 
Nobody has a perfect life. And so some of those challenges that they're dealing with, they don't have a safe place to talk about, a safe place to hear their, their peers. One of the biggest gifts that they get from coming to our, our retreats and camps is they realize I'm not the only one who struggles with these things. I'm not the only one who worries about her body. I'm not the only one who changes her outfit four or five times every morning before I go to school. I'm not the only one that gets anxious. I'm not the only one who, who's getting really stressed out about college next year. I'm, there's so much uncertainty. I'm, I'm so stressed out. It's hard for me to, to take action or to make decisions because I'm so worried I'm going to make the wrong decision. When they hear other people their age talking about those similar kinds of things, then there's a sense of, I'm not crazy. It's so, it, these are normal feelings. And I can learn to, to cope with them. I can learn some skills. And I'm not the only one. It's such a gift that they know that piece. So our, our retreats, we talk about body image. We talk about anxiety. We talk about stress. We talk about their pressures on them. We talk about um, motivation. We talk about pretty much whatever that group brings to us. And besides listening and giving them a safe space to vent and to talk and to cry and whatever, we also teach them some really good skills, life skills, so they can start doing a better job of taking care of themselves, asking for what they want, setting boundaries, taking care of their emotions, learning how to have quiet time, et cetera, et cetera. The uh, learning how to have quiet time and some of the other things you mentioned, those are the skills that you're teaching them at some parts of the cancer retreats. So like, for example, if we're talking about how to have quiet time, would that be meditation, for example, or is it just tailored towards whatever that particular child finds appealing? We will introduce all kinds of different things. Sometimes we do some breathing exercises. Sometimes we do meditation. Sometimes we do some yoga stretches. Sometimes we do some journaling. We do visualizations, guided imagery. We took a group out uh, this fall. We took them out in nature one day and they and everybody just found their own spot. And then we blindfolded them. And we said, just get comfortable. And we just want you to focus on one sense at a time, which is right now listening. So when you're outside, you hear the wind going through the trees and you hear the leaves rustling. You might hear birds. You, you, know, you hear nature sounds. That's very calming. And it brings you to the moment. That's a part of being mindful is like just to be in the present moment. And so you know, we, we do all kinds of things like that because they need that. They need to learn how to quiet themselves. You know, people talk to them all the time about trust your gut, trust your intuition, follow your heart. It's hard to do that if you don't know how to get quiet and access that. So they need to learn how to get quiet, not only to have some outlets. Sometimes we'll do drawing, we'll do some painting, we'll do some sculpting. We'll do all kinds of ways that they can learn to release and channel their emotions. Write a song, write a poem, write a letter to somebody. Don't send it. Rip it up. You know, Write in your journal. There's so many ways that they can learn to do that. They just need some ideas and they need some practice. One of my major concerns for children going forward, whether that's boys or girls, is social media attention spans and all of the issues that come along with what I would call short form content that is just constant. Is that an area that you're worried about or that you discuss or try to work around? And, and maybe the quiet time is a way for people to kind of slow down their their mind and, and the way they're living. Yeah. One of the first things that happens when, it, when one of the girls comes to one of our weekend retreats, our summer camps, is they come to the check-in table, and one of the questions is, where's your phone? Or your watch, or your <laughs> tablet, or, you know, it's like shaking them down. We don't do that. but And so they begrudgingly hand the, the phone off to the parents, and they're shaking, and and 
What's interesting though is, and I, I've been, I do this every time at the end of the weekend or at the end of a week of camp, I'll ask the girls, how many of you missed your phone? And the answer I get every time is they didn't miss their phone. They actually enjoyed not having it. They would never say that to their parents, probably. <laughs> but what they enjoyed was I didn't have that worry about what other people doing. A lot of girls will say, I, I use that stuff. I get on TikTok. I do these things most of the time because I'm bored. Well, when they're at our camp, if you're bored, you talk to the person next to you. When we're walking down the path on our on our hike and on Saturday afternoon, there's somebody to talk to. We're not no, Nobody has their thing in their face. And so they actually connect at much deeper levels. And they, of course, they like that. Who wouldn't want that? They miss that. I think they've been missing it for a long time. I think the culture is missing it. I think COVID added another layer to that. But even before COVID, there has been data that shows that people in this country are lonely. People in this country feel disconnected. I don't think it's just social media. I don't think it's just phones. That's a, that's a big piece of the pie. Um, so they can learn how to take their own breaks, if you will. And also, we, we need to teach our daughters to and sons as well. We need to teach our kids to be more media and image savvy. In other words, even though girls are very tech savvy, and even though they're so cool and they're so with it, they still sometimes, when they're looking at those screens, they forget that that's, that person on the screen doesn't really look like that. You know, they forget about the Photoshop. They know that, but when they're looking, they get caught up in comparing themselves, wanting to be like all those kinds of people, feeling bad because they don't look that way. And so they need to be educated more about being more conscious of when I'm looking at these things. I need to keep asking myself questions about, I wonder how long it took for them to make her up. Dove.com had some really nice videos that we used to show sometimes at our camps. We haven't done it for a couple of years, but showing like before and after pictures. There's even some websites that shows before and after pictures of movie stars, rock stars. So it shows them like, like you and I just hanging out, no makeup, nothing. Then it shows them after being made up for the photo shoot. And it's like, it doesn't even look like them. So they need constant reminders of those sorts of things. And I think if they're involved in things that they love to do, if they're involved with a passion, something that fulfills them, and they pour their heart and soul into that, that's a big protective factor in my experience because they're worried less about how they look. It's more about what do I love to do? What am I good at? What, what fulfills me? And then one other quick thing, because you're a dad of a daughter. There's some good research that shows that if you watch TV shows, movies, read books with your daughters, that that's protective for them getting sucked up into all this image stuff, like I should look that way. There's something about watching that TV show or movie and then sometimes pausing it and saying, I wonder why somebody would act that way. Why do you think that girl is feeling bad about herself? Have you ever felt that way? So you can sort of use an indirect lesson to teach them or, or to make them aware of something that may be going on for them. And when you can have those discussions when you're looking at things like that or, or have them look, look through, not now, but when she's in high school, looking through whatever, it, may, it won't be TikTok then, it'll be something else, a new version of something. Right. To ask questions about, what do you think about that? What's your interest in that? I'm curious. And listen and try and get a sense of where they're at with it. Sometimes they just need information. They need a little bit of feedback. They may need a different way of looking at it. I think we, we can have a big part in that. And restrict. Parents ask me all the time, yeah, but at what age should you start them on? So what, what age? Like they want an exact age. And I tell them, I don't think it's, it's less about an age. It's more about, are they ready? My wife and I have this, this handout that shows 
socially, emotionally, responsibility-wise, accountability. There's a lot of readiness signs they can show you that would tell you they might be ready to try it. And uh, one of the things that I, I, would, I do say to parents is, even though I say there's not an age, I do say, in my experience, I don't think girls are ready for social media till at least high school with a good track record. Track record of mature behavior, a track record of being able to set boundaries, a track record of being able to handle their, their conflicts with their friends. Because if you're not handling your conflicts in the hallway of school, it's going to blow up online. So they need to show you some emotional skills. They don't get triggered by other people. They can cope with their emotions. You know, if, they're, if they have a lot of anxiety and depression, that's not a great place to hang out. So if they can show you that, you know, with these readiness signs that, that I have shown you over many, many, many months, that I have the maturity, the impulse control, the, the sense of responsibility, I can show you in other ways, then they might be ready to try it. You made a lot of great points there. I particularly liked, for lack of a better term, showing them how the sausage is made. So uh, people aren't just naturally, you know, looking this way without the makeup, the, the Photoshop and all these other things. One common thread that I'm hearing is, um, you know, being a good listener, asking questions and just kind of getting out of the way and listening. I feel like Perhaps mothers are a little better at listening than fathers. I could be wrong. I may be projecting. I don't know. But is <laughs> that listening piece and kind of the connection that maybe daughters have with their mothers versus their fathers, why you have the daddy-daughter camp? Yes. And I show dads and moms, I draw a little picture of the brain. And I told them, there's a study that was done at, uh, I believe it was Stanford University several years ago. They took college-age women and men. They had their brains hooked up to these monitors. They could see which parts of the brain were being activated in that moment. Then they showed them photographs of people who were suffering, people in pain, to cause them to feel feel bad, feel sorry, feel hurt. And then what they found was interesting. When they showed the, the photographs to the women, nine different parts of their brain activated and both sides. So one conclusion was, well, women have a lot of emotional centers in their brain. They showed the same photographs to the men, only two parts of their brain activated and one side. And I always tell girls quickly, it doesn't mean I or your dads don't have <laughs> emotions. It just means we're wired different. But also, when the men's emotional centers activated and they were feeling, a part of their brain then activated, a part of the brain called the temporal parietal junction. And it's a part of the brain that likes to fix problems. So a lot of times, we've been wired since we were cavemen, 150, whatever, 1,000 years ago. We've been wired that way. Evolutionary psychologists who try and figure out when do our brains are different, you know, men, women, whatever, in some ways, they felt like when men were out there hunting in very dangerous, uncivilized, prehistoric times, they had to be totally in the moment, focused on one thing at a time, and they could not allow their emotions to cloud their judgment and cause them to hesitate or pause because in that hesitation moment, whack, you know, they wouldn't survive. And so what happens for a lot of men is their daughter starts to talk about something and they're upset, maybe crying, my friend's been so upset, She's my friend's been leaving me out, I feel upset about that. Their dads go right to, well, why don't you just do this? Why don't you just do that? They go right into fix-it mode. And I think sometimes we do that with our spouses as well. And if you ask your spouse, they would probably say that's true. <laughs> and so that doesn't mean we're screwed. It just means we understand that we're kind of wired to do that. So we need to catch ourselves and just remind ourselves, just listen. I tell girls who are old enough, grade school, middle school, high school, that if you have something important that you want your, your parents, your dads to hear you about, 
I would tell them before you start, this is really important. I really want you to hear me. So please don't interrupt. Please don't give me ideas. I don't want idea. I just want you to understand where I'm coming from. And then the dad can go, oh, okay, thanks. Let me get myself ready for this. Okay, I'll just listen right now. I think being a good listener isn't something that just moms do. And I tell girls all the time, I tell dads all the time, I should say, share your stories with your daughter. Because sometimes they, th- they think, well, maybe I should share this with my mom because my dad would never understand. He was never a girl. And I'll tell them, that's true. Your dad was not a girl. And it doesn't mean he wouldn't understand. And the reason they think that is because we don't share our stories enough. So when I, if I asked a room of dads, which I did yesterday, it was, it was a group of dads yesterday we talked to, how many of you felt awkward in middle school? Well, obviously everybody's hand goes up, right? How many of you ever worried about how you looked? How many of you uh, uh, felt self-conscious? Right, everybody. So it looked different maybe than girls, but similar feelings. So I tell dads, you need to start showing them those or sharing those stories. They may look at you as this grown man, this final product, got it all together, you know, married maybe, you have a kid, you got a job, blah, blah. They didn't see us when we were pimply and awkward and, you know, whatever. And so we need to share some stories about our our rough times, our, our inadequate times, our mistakes, our failures. So they realize, well, maybe he can understand. So for me personally, I was under the impression that I should be projecting a strong image for my children and being a strong leader and role model for them. And, and that uh, sharing piece of what it took to become who I am today didn't really enter my mind. So if I understand correctly, we do want to project or be a strong leader uh, for our children or our families, but we want to be vulnerable and share with them the challenges that we faced so they don't think that we were just born this finished product. Is that accurate? Yes. I would also, I'm not sure what you mean or what the culture means by strong. Because in my mind, strong isn't like this stoic, like, I got together, I'm very directive, all this. I mean, there's maybe a place for some of that sometimes. I see more in terms of for dads, strong might mean having high integrity. It might mean uh, being in the moment. It might be you're the kind of person who sets good boundaries that your kids can watch and model from. It might mean you're strong, meaning that you they'll be watching how you, how you uh, interact with your spouse, their mom. There's so many ways that we can be strong. We can trust our intuition. We can be a good listener. We can not be triggered. We can, you know, keep our, we can uh, hold our temper. There's so many ways that we can, you know, model strong. That's not just about that old model of stoic and all that. I don't think that's what they need. If you want them to be coming to you and being vulnerable, then I think if you're the kind of person who, who doesn't show any emotion, then they're probably not going to come. So I think we've need to, and for people who have boys, I think they need to be educated that it's okay to show your emotions. They're just emotions. All of us have them. And, you know, repressing them is what causes anger and outbursts and being triggered easily and aggression a lot of times. Other things do too. But that's one of the main reasons why that happens is because we haven't been given permission to be vulnerable. And being vulnerable and sharing things is also a way of showing your strength. My thinking or definition of being strong is in line with yours, except for the stoic piece. So that's a new thought for me and something that I think I will look to change in my life. I was under the impression that to be a good role model or a good father or to to show that you're a strong pillar for your family, 
a man should probably be more stoic than emotional. But I do understand now and I will reflect on the fact that you need to show vulnerability. You need to be open and honest if you expect the same from your children, especially your daughters. Yeah. And, and to show them that we all have these feelings. It's normal. It's just, it's a normal part of all of us. And if we deny those parts of ourselves and they end up causing mischief, those repressed feelings end up showing somehow. And I would rather they become out in a healthy way than an unhealthy way. Do you think the uh, repressed feelings are what lead to eventual emotional roller coasters or issues in teenage years if if we don't lay the, that foundation or those building blocks at a younger age? I think that's part of it, yes. If they haven't learned how to have healthy outlets for all those emotions and, and all that buildup we talked about before. But I also think sometimes there's a quote from someone, Kierkegaard or somebody, who said something about if you have a flower that's not doing well, you don't change the flower, you change the environment. You change the garden. I think sometimes we fail to look at our children's garden, i.e., why then there's so much stress and pressure with all this A, straight A thing and this got to be in the right club team thing. There's so much energy around all that that's causing undue pressure on kids and they have their whole life figured out. I've been talking to a lot of girls who are at seniors in high school lately and also seniors in college, some women who are in college, and they're so stressed out and they're so anxious because they, because they don't know what the next step is and they're so afraid of making a mistake. They have this, they've absorbed something from us in the culture and the educational system that says, if you make one wrong decision at this moment in your life, your whole life will be derailed. What college you go to, what's your major, what's your first job, you know, what all that. And so they, they get so stressed out by that. And I tell them, that's not true. That's just not true. I say, you don't have to believe me. I encourage them to interview every adult that they bump into and ask them, when you were my age, when you were 16, when you were 18, when you were 20, did you know you'd be doing what you're doing now at age 50? I tell them, most adults would say, I had no idea. I didn't go from point A at age 18 to point Z at age 50 in a straight line. I zigzagged. That's what most people do. I also tell them, read biographies, watch documentaries about people's lives. So you start hearing some stories about, it's okay not to know. It's okay to kind of zigzag our way to our calling, our purpose. We may not be aware of it when we're 16, 18. It's okay. And what's really disturbing to me, besides all of that, is that in the last, I'll say, maybe five-ish years, there's an exercise we do at our retreats and camps and school programs sometimes where we, it's called cross the line, where all the girls will be on one side of the line. There's a rope down the middle of the room. And then we'll throw out things like cross the line if you have a pet, cross the line if you have an annoying sibling. But then we start getting into some more interesting things like cross the line if you've ever been left out, cross the line if you've ever been teased, cross the line if you've ever felt lonely. And one of the questions that we've been asking is, Cross the line if you get stressed out about your future. And in the last five years, if we're with a grade school group, almost everybody crosses the line. Wow. I don't think that happened 15 years ago. I started seeing it in a lot of high school kids. I started seeing it in middle schoolers, which was disturbing. And now we're seeing it, my wife and I, in grade school kids. There's something about all that that's being filtered down, this pressure about having it all figured out and doing it all right and you know, all this stuff. And I think it's really undue and untrue. It's untrue. You don't need to have have it all figured out. You're not behind. Your life, 
And if you make a quote unquote mistake, like you pick a major and you end up switching it, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> I tell them I've been with a lot of very successful business people in the last 20 years doing talks and workshops and things. We've traveled around with groups and I always ask them about their histories and all that. And almost all of them had failures along the way. They didn't start their first company at age 22 and then it soared to the top of the charts. Most of them stopped and started and started something, it failed, started another one, learned. I said, that's that's the way it works. It's not this, it's not the way you that you've uh, been imagining it. It's not this myth that the culture has been kind of pushing on our kids. Sort of in line with that, would you recommend then that we expose our daughters to as many activities as possible or as many potential hobbies as possible versus maybe applying pressure for them to become really good or elite at one thing? And you touched on it earlier when you said uh, you ask parents to envision how they want their kids to be when they're growing up. And no one mentions that they want their kid to be, you know, super successful in, in a particular sport or business or whatever the case is. Absolutely. First of all, I would follow their lead. And so if they show an interest in playing piano, if they show an interest in soccer, then then maybe they try a soccer team and they do that for a while and they go, eh, I don't like this anymore. Then great. What do you want to do now? I would follow their lead for the most part. There's a book I read oh, a year or two ago called Range by David Epstein, I think. And he looked at people who were very successful in their line of life, be they athletes or politicians or musicians or whatever. And one of the things that he, an artist, one of the things that he found was that almost all of them didn't hyper-specialize like we're forcing, not, we're encouraging kids to do this in this day and age. What most of those people did, it was a range of things. So most people who, who, who play violin in the symphony orchestra play like two or three or four instruments. Almost every professional athlete, when they interview them, didn't just play football or just play basketball. They played a range of sports. And it was from that range of experiences that that got them along the way. So I think I, I think it's important if your kids are I'll just use sports as an example. I, it's so important to get a good coach early on. It's important to get a good coach always, but especially when they're young. You want somebody who is fun, who gets the kids involved, so that because the number one reason the kids quit sports is because it's not fun anymore. Most often, either because the coach is a nut. And screaming and yelling, it's all about winning. Or the parents are nutty and they're screaming and yelling. And it's all about winning. So I think it's good to encourage kids to try lots of things. I encourage kids who are who are really doing lots of sports to do some art thing, to you know get get in a play or play an instrument or write poetry or something or or, or join the art club at school because they need a breadth of experience to be well rounded. I think it's important to be well-rounded. So if you're just doing theater or you're just doing this, I think it's good to stretch and try different things. If you don't like it, then, you know, just keep, just keep trying things. I see some parents who get so upset and so worried because their kid hasn't found their thing yet. And a lot of times you're talking like a seven-year-old or a 12-year-old, like he's 12, she's seven. A lot of people didn't find their thing when they're that age. It's okay. Let them sample. Let them meander until they find their thing. It's okay. That's pretty normal. I think some of that comes back to letting kids be kids and letting them enjoy their childhood. Uh, your sixth and latest book, uh, She Leads, A Practical Guide for Raising Girls Who Advocate, Influence, and Lead. 
is available for purchase anywhere online where you can buy uh, books and it's on your website as well. Can you give us just a brief background on why you wrote that book and also what a reader will be able to take away from that? Well, I, one of the reasons was because I was I was hearing from girls this, what I think is a distorted view of what it means to be a leader, to be brave, to be courageous, to be strong. So I wanted to give parents an idea about there's other ways of looking at leadership and developing leaders. I also found that in our weekend retreats and our summer camps, it's not a leadership camp, but what I found was I think a lot of those girls end up becoming leaders because of their, they had high social emotional intelligence. They knew themselves. They understood other people. They knew what, what made them tick and what other people, other people tick. They knew how to resolve conflicts directly, effectively, and peacefully. They had learned skills that to me are really important for leaders. Well, that's one of the reasons. I, I read an interesting book, oh, probably 10 years ago called the Athena Doctrine. Athena was a goddess of strength and whatever. And these authors, two men actually, went around the world to, I think it was 30 countries, 30 cultures, asking questions about, you know, who are the leaders in your country? What would what would you describe as being the more feminine versus masculine qualities of leadership? And pretty much every country had the same answers. That, you know, the, the male qualities were things like confidence and pride and power and control and aggression and competition and those sorts of things. The more feminine qualities were more things like collaboration, intuition, kindness. They showed strength and leadership in a different way. One quick example from Israel. There was and is problems at the border uh, between Israel and Palestine, fighting, skirmishing, all that. I mean, even before what's going on in the last couple of months, or the last month or so. And so they didn't know what to do. So what they decided to appoint a woman to be in charge of that, the borders. Her name was, uh, oh, I forgot, Weinstein or something. Anyway, so one of the first things she did was she replaced the guards with women at the border because what she found and what ended up coming true was that women were much less likely to be triggered. They're more likely to be patient and more likely to listen to both sides and not just overpower people. And so because of that, the number of skirmishes started going down. So again, I, I, wanted, I wanted people to understand too that, like I said before, leadership isn't necessarily being president of the student council. There's lots of ways of looking at it. There's lots of ways you can, you can help your daughters to create the life that they want for themselves, to create their own path and to trust themselves and to trust their gut and to trust their intuition and to be able to set boundaries and know they're not being mean and to be able to speak up and to advocate for themselves and to take care of themselves. There's so many ways that, that we can, t let me give you another quick example. One of the things I encourage parents to do with their daughters, and this would be true for sons too, is we can, we tend to complain a lot about our leaders, right? We, 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 we criticize the, the president of the United States. We criticize the principal of the school. We criticize the head coach. We criticize leaders. And because of that, it's kind of like, who wants to be a leader? Would you want to be president of Great the United point. States? And, get, and, you know, it's just all that flood. And so I tell them what I would rather they do instead of criticizing leaders in your home is ask your daughter, if you were president of the United States right now, what would you do? If you were the principal of your school, how would you handle that problem that's going on in your school? If there's people complaining about their playing time and they're, and they're upset with the coach and they're criticizing the coach, if you were the head coach, how would you handle that issue? So they start putting themselves in the shoes of leaders, trying to problem solve and think like a leader. So they start to, to see themselves as being a leader as opposed to somebody who's going to get blasted. 
That's such a great point. Uh, you've given so many really, really just impactful frameworks for, I think, how listeners, viewers can think about raising their kids. I know I'm, I'm going to be implementing some of the things you mentioned. Uh, that leader point was great because we, as a society, just in general, we really do criticize our leaders constantly. And very often, we don't praise them or ask what we would do differently. So that's that's such a great point. Your podcast, Raising Daughters, you have over 200 episodes. I'm sure it's filled with uh, useful content for folks. And that can be streamed absolutely anywhere that podcasts are available, correct? Correct. Sounds good. Some of the podcasts are just me talking about an issue. I just wrote up one uh, yesterday about teaching kids how to resolve conflicts peacefully. Uh, many of them, especially in the last six months, I, I interview a lot of authors I read a lot, people who are doing really cool things. And so I'll interview authors, but I also interview kids a lot, which I like to do. I had some high school seniors at my house about two weeks ago, we, and we, did, we recorded two podcasts. One was about the dating scene with high school students today. It was fascinating. And the other was their look at social media. We judge it and we're worried about it. And it's usually an adult sort of conversation as opposed to well, what do they see in it? How are they affected by it? What, what's their viewpoint? So I think those are really fascinating listens for, for parents to try and get into the head of girls at different ages and say, I wonder what, what's going on for girls and, and how can I then apply that to my daughter or even better, listen to this podcast with my daughter and spur a conversation about whatever the issue might be. I would encourage anyone with a daughter to listen to your podcast and also to buy your book. The podcast has, has been great. Uh, there's 200 plus episodes, so I haven't listened to all of them just yet, uh, but I plan on doing so <laughs> as my daughter you know, approaches adulthood. So I'm sure I'll get through them uh, over the next few years. <laughs> but there'll be more. There's one a week. <laughs> yeah, yeah so I'll have to maybe speed up the pace a little bit. <laughs> I do really appreciate your time, Dr. Jordan, but before you leave, I need to ask you for what we call a hole-in-one, which is just your most impactful piece of advice that you can give to a listener or viewer that, that will have a positive impact on their life, or in, in this case, perhaps the way that they're raising their daughters. Can I do two holes in one? Yep. Because sometimes parents ask me, if, if you could give me one piece of advice that would help my parenting, what would you say? And so two things. One of them is, is do your own personal growth. Because I think a lot of times parents have a sense of what they want. Sometimes it's what they don't want. They don't want certain parts of their childhood. They want some parts. But I think what happens is that we can get triggered with, with old things that, that aren't resolved in our own lives from our past and if, when you have kids, they will trigger all kinds of things. And sometimes it causes us to not parent in the way that we want. It, it evokes a lot of emotion, sometimes anger, whatever, or anxiety. So I say clean it up as best you can. And then also clean up things that have to do with your marriage so that you have a happy, nurturing marriage to model for your kids. So one thing is do your own work so you don't bring that into your children's. I think the second thing might be that listening piece. Learning to stay quiet and listen and try and get in your kids' shoes and walk around and for a while like Atticus Finch talked, talked about in To Kill a Mockingbird. You know, to get in people's skin and walk, and walk around, trying to see it from their point of view. If our daughters know that we, we care about them, we love them enough to really want to see it from their point of view and to try to understand how they're seeing things, I think that's a huge, huge, huge gift for them 
to know that they have somebody they can go to. There's all kinds of research about kids who have been through adversities growing up. And one of the most important buffers for them is having at least one adult who was there, who took them under their wing, who listened to them, understood them, saw them for who they are, saw them in, even in a higher vision that they could see for themselves. Having one person like that is is the best buffer for kids who go through adversities, which is every kid. <laughs> All kids have adversity along the way. It's, that part of, it's part of life. So but having that person who's there in that loving, nurturing way who can listen and be there for them, that's, that's huge. That's an excellent piece of advice. Uh, Dr. Jordan, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, I am very confident that listeners and viewers of this show uh, received a ton of value. So uh, again, drtimjordan.com is the website. Raising Daughters is the podcast. And there are six published books that you can dig through at your own convenience. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Good luck with your, with your daughter. Thank you. Appreciate it. If you're a high quality company interested in reaching the high performing audience of Country Club Conversations, let's see how we can work together. To explore sponsorship opportunities, email advertising at storyboardliving.com. That's advertising at storyboardliving.com.